two households, both alike in dignity, in fair Verona, where we lay our scene. From ancient grudge break to new mutiny, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. From forth the fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life, whose misadventured piteous overthrows doth with their death bury their parents' strife. The fearful passage of their death-marked love and the continuance of their parents' rage, which but their children's end naught could remove, is now the two hours traffic of our stage. Welcome to Verbal Diorama, episode 219, William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And as always, hi, hello, welcome to Verbal Diorama. Whether you are a brand new listener, whether you are a regular returning listener or an irregular returning listener, thank you for being here. Thank you for choosing to listen to this podcast. Thank you for returning to listen to this podcast. I'm, as always, so happy to have you here for the history and legacy of William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. And this is an episode that's been a long time coming to this podcast because this is probably my favourite Shakespeare adaptation of all time. And yeah, I don't say that lightly either because there's been a lot of adaptations of Shakespeare. There's been a lot of adaptations of Romeo and Juliet. But there's something special about this movie. And speaking about this something about, thank you as always, for the amazing reception that I get to all of the episodes of this podcast, but the most recent ones, so Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, and There's Something About Mary. And There's Something About Mary had its controversies, it's safe to say, but so does Baz Luhrmann's contemporary adaptation of Romeo and Juliet. 
It's completely anachronistic. Swords are now guns, called swords. The action is transported to 1996 US with the Montague and Capulet families as huge business conglomerates slash mafia families with clear nods to Latinx culture and religious symbolism. You could say there's something about Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet that just speaks to me. And I guess it speaks to a lot of other people too. So without further ado, here's the trailer for William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Till now, for swear at sight, for I never saw true beauty till this night. In fair Verona, where we lay our scene, two households, both alike in dignity. From forth the fatal loins of these two foes, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life. Who is it that you love? Gentle Romeo, if thou dost love, pronounce it faithfully. My heart's dear love is set on the fair daughter of rich Capulet. Romeo! Thou art a villain! Sharing someone else's Turn and drop! Turn and drop! Romeo's so simple! My only love sprung from my only hate. Romeo is Venice! Maybe they will murder thee. Let them find me here. Claire Danes in William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Good night. Good night. Two households, both alike in dignity, in Fair Verona, where we lay our scene. From ancient grudge break to new mutiny, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. From fall to fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life whose misadventured piteous overthrows doth with their death bury their parents' strife. The fearful passage of their death-marked love and the continuance of their parents' rage, which but their children's end naught could remove, is now the two hours' traffic of our stage. The which if you with patient ears attend, what here shall miss, our toil shall strive to mend. Let's run through the cast. We have... Leonardo DiCaprio as Romeo Montague, Claire Danes as Juliet Capulet, John Leguizamo as Tybalt, Harold Perrineau as Mercutio, Dash Mihawk as Benvolio, Miriam Margulies as Nurse, Paul Rudd as Dave Paris, Pete Postlethwaite as Father Lawrence, Jesse Bradford as Balthazar, Vondi Curtis Hall as Captain Prince, Brian Dennehy as Ted Montague, 
Christina Pickles as Caroline Montague, Paul Solvino as Fulgencio Capulet, and Diane Venora as Gloria Capulet. William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet has a screenplay by Craig Pierce and Baz Luhrmann, based on Romeo and Juliet by William Shakespeare and was directed by Baz Luhrmann. And before I start, forgive me for the lack of iambic pentameter in this episode. Romeo and Juliet is probably one of Shakespeare's most famous tragedies and probably the most popular of all of his works. It's still being taught, referenced, studied, adapted and performed in the around 430 years since it was written. The exact date that Shakespeare wrote it is still unknown. It could be as early as 1591. It could be as late as 1595. It could be somewhere in between. The publication of An Excellent Conceited Tragedy of Romeo and Juliet, a printed edition in 1597, would suggest that Shakespeare would have composed the play at the very least before 1596. This version was widely seen as a bad quarto because it was so different to Shakespeare's original play. A superior printed edition, The Most Excellent and Lamentable Tragedy of Romeo and Juliet, was printed in 1599 and was newly corrected, augmented and amended. It's also one of the most screened plays of all time with at least 46 direct film adaptations, including made-for-TV movies, filmings of theatrical versions. That doesn't include the various other adaptations based on the original text. Most famously, movies like West Side Story, Shakespeare in Love, Romeo Must Die, Romeo and Juliet, and Warm Bodies. There have also been 11 ballets. The first American film version of Romeo and Juliet, a silent film short starring Paul Panzer as Romeo, and Florence Lawrence as Juliet came out in 1908. But the most notable theatrical releases are probably George Cukor's 1936 Romeo and Juliet, starring Leslie Howard as Romeo, and Norma Shearer as Juliet, which garnered four Oscar nominations in 1936 for Best Picture, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actor, and Best Art Direction. In 1968, Leonard Whiting and Olivia Hussey starred as Romeo and Juliet, in Franco Zeffirelli's multiple Academy Award and Golden Globe winning adaptation, also the most successful Shakespeare film adaptation at the time, Whiting was 17 and Hussey 16 during filming and contained controversial nude scenes. 55 years later, Hussey and Whiting would file a lawsuit in January 2023 alleging sexual abuse, sexual harassment and fraud for Zeffirelli filming them nude without consent. But the suit was dismissed in May 2023 with the judge stating that the case did not meet the requirements for suspending the statute of limitations for child sexual abuse. And the third major film adaptation is Baz Luhrmann's 1996 adaptation, which has become the definitive adaptation. An adaptation that doesn't alienate faithful Shakespeare veterans, but is also accessible enough to be shown to teenagers in high school. It's aged remarkably well, not just for 430-year-old text, but also for a 27-year-old film. And really, the story starts with Baz Luhrmann's first movie. Luhrmann and a group of his fellow students at the National Institute of Dramatic Arts in Sydney created a short comedy drama set in the brutal world of competitive ballroom dancing in the early 1980s. After graduating, Luhrmann was asked to restage the play for the Czechoslovakian Youth Drama Festival in Bratislava in 1986 because the play's original 1984 NIDA production had received positive reviews. He asked Craig Pierce, a classmate, to assist him in expanding and rewriting the script. The play was an instant hit at the festival, winning both the Best Director and Best Production Prizes for its themes of artistic repression and underdogs overcoming the odds. 
that play was Strictly Ballroom. And the resulting movie deserves an episode of its own one day, so I won't delve too much into the history and legacy of it, but it's safe to say that Strictly Ballroom was an instant hit at the Cannes Film Festival, was a critical darling, swept the board at the Australian Film Institute Awards in 1992, won three BAFTAs from eight nominations, and made 80 million Australian dollars on its $3 million budget. So post-Strictly Ballroom, Baz Luhrmann was offered all kinds of possibilities for his next feature. He took time off making films for a couple of years and took his time to find his next project. He wanted something creatively fulfilling, and the Bard was, himself, a creatively fulfilling prospect. William Shakespeare has 1,738 writing credits on IMDb, with 45 upcoming. So lots of people get creative inspiration from him. And I live in the middle of England, in a place that's officially designated as Shakespeare's County, the County of Warwickshire. Shakespeare is practically in our blood in this area. Maybe because most of us are descended from him, who knows? I've been to Anne Hathaway's cottage, the Anne Hathaway that was Shakespeare's wife, not the actor Anne Hathaway. And growing up, Romeo and Juliet was the most accessible of all of Shakespeare's texts to learn, along with A Midsummer Night's Dream. But despite probably everyone on the planet knowing William Shakespeare, one of his plays, sonnets or poems, or an adaptation of one of his plays, his works being translated into every major living language and performed more often than those of any other playwright, we still know very little about his life and who he was as a person. Much of what we do know is speculation, including his physical appearance, because he didn't commission any portraits during his life. But what we can surmise from Shakespeare is that he knew his audience. He knew how to capture an audience, he knew character and prose, and he could send a story to rich and poor alike. He was the ultimate entertainer, and because of this, Baz Luhrmann wanted to do a Romeo and Juliet movie as if Shakespeare himself was the director. If he were alive in the 1990s, he'd look to the MTV generation, to millennial viewers, and make a contemporary story about love, lust, family, and gang warfare. Lerman was in a first-look deal with 20th Century Fox after the huge success of Strictly Ballroom, but Fox themselves weren't convinced about a contemporary Romeo and Juliet. Lerman went to his Strictly Ballroom co-writer Craig Pierce to co-write the screenplay and persuaded Fox to give them a few thousand dollars to put together a workshop in Sydney, but Lerman himself wasn't enough clout to get Fox to say yes. For them to say yes, they needed a bigger name, an up-and-coming actor who'd already received his first Academy Award nomination at just 19 years of age. Someone who'd worked with Drew Barrymore, Robert De Niro, Johnny Depp, Sharon Stone, Gene Hackman, had been directed by Lassie Holstrom and Sam Raimi. Leonardo DiCaprio was Lerman's Romeo of choice and was pivotal to getting the film made. DiCaprio flew to Sydney with his own money, and workshop the idea with Lerman as well as film a small scene between himself in character with another actor as Tybalt, dressed in suits, post-Romeo's marriage to Tybalt's cousin Juliet. And this is a scene where Romeo explains to Tybalt that he's not a villain. This was despite the fact that DiCaprio himself wasn't totally convinced of whether he wanted to commit to this movie or not. DiCaprio was up and coming, but his experience with Romeo and Juliet would change the course of his career it would even lead him to make Titanic the following year because he worked with Paul Rudd and Paul Rudd's father was a Titanic expert. And so when DiCaprio said to Paul Rudd, oh, I've been approached to make this movie about Titanic, but I'm not sure I want to do it. Paul Rudd said, yeah, you really need to make that movie about Titanic. But that's by the by. 
Because Shakespeare with guns and cars and heavy images of Catholicism was a little bit outlandish and definitely something Hollywood would come up with. But DiCaprio was swayed by Lerman's vision and he even contributed to the script to make it sound cool and full of youthful exuberance. They showed the scene that they filmed to Fox executives who immediately saw the potential and the commentary on US gang culture, which obviously at the time, US gang culture was pretty well known. Lerman likened it to a war of attrition, with him and DiCaprio on one side and the Fox executives on the other. But it didn't take long, and they were keen to invest in a modern adaptation. Lerman's non-negotiable was that he got to work with his Australian team. His director of photography, his writer, his editor, his production designer, his art director, all of whom were based in Australia, all of whom he would fly to Canada and the US and Mexico, all of whom he'd also go on to work with on Moulin Rouge. Maybe if they all knew just what it would take to get this movie made, they might have all changed their minds. But we'll come back to that. All of the development and most of the pre-production was done in Australia and most of it was heavily researching Shakespeare's texts and the Elizabethan world. Weapons were a reality of Elizabethan life and so it was decided to remove the real-world possibility of a major city like Los Angeles or Miami and create a fictional city headed by two mafia-style families. The wealthy would carry guns, their swords, just as the wealthy in the Elizabethan world also packed weapons. The dominant culture in the Western world is the US and some states are heavily influenced by Latinx culture and this would help create the universal city of Verona Beach. Leonardo DiCaprio was a youthful looking 21 and his Juliet needed to look young, but not too young. Natalie Portman, then 14, was hired, but during rehearsal she was let go from the production for just looking too young next to DiCaprio. Reportedly, Jennifer Love Hewitt and Kate Winslet were considered, as was Sarah Michelle Gellar, who turned the role down due to scheduling conflicts. Claire Danes was fresh off the cancellation of her TV show My So-Called Life, a show that had garnered her a Golden Globe and launched her career, despite its cancellation after just one season. She also starred in the 1994 version of Little Women alongside Winona Ryder and Kirsten Dunst. She was introduced to Lerman by director Jane Campion, who had auditioned her for Portrait of a Lady, and she impressed both Lerman and DiCaprio with her maturity and line delivery, despite herself only being 16 when she was cast and 17 during filming. Dane studied the play with her high school English teacher the semester before she headed to film down in Mexico. And this is an incredible cast for a quote-unquote teen movie. Alongside DiCaprio and Danes were industry stalwarts like Miriam Margulies and Pete Postlethwaite, recognisable faces like John Leguizamo. Fresh off his role in Clueless the previous year, Paul Rudd, and probably the most memorable Mercutio in Romeo and Juliet history, Harold Perrineau. And Harold Perrineau was doing theatre in New York when he saw the auditions for Romeo and Juliet. He auditioned six times for the movie, including the famous Queen Mab speech, it was a role that even Ewan McGregor, Christian Bale and John Leguizamo had auditioned for. Once Perrineau got the role, he had no idea he'd be dressing in drag until he went to Mexico. But he embraced the idea of young men filled with lust and desire expressing sexuality in a fluid way. Mercutio was the coolest guy in the Montague gang. And he was secure enough in his masculinity to embrace dressing in drag, singing along to Young Hearts Run Free, which Perrineau felt most natural as a trained dancer. He would admit the interview with Vulture that he struggled to make the dialogue sound natural and would use a dialect coach. 
but he didn't struggle at all with singing along to Young Hearts Run Free. Filming was mostly concentrated in Mexico City and Boca del Rio, Veracruz. The exterior of the Capulet Mansion was Chapultepec Castle, and the ballroom was built on set at Estudios Cherubusco, one of the oldest and largest movie studios in Mexico. And filming in Mexico City was incredibly problematic. The set was plagued with illness, flu, altitude sickness, stomach issues, pollution, exhaustion, all affected the set during the 72-day shoot, with the entire crew out of commission for four days due to various illnesses. Then there was the huge storm that ended up on camera during Mercutio's death. They continued filming as the hurricane was reaching shore, only stopping when the daylight ended, and then taking cover as the hurricane ripped through the Veracruz area. Bees were also a problem in Veracruz too, apparently. Oh, and there was the small matter of a kidnapping as well. During production, hairstylist Aldo Signoretti was kidnapped and held for ransom by local gang members. The kidnappers called and demanded $300 for Signoretti's return. Makeup artist Maurizio Silvi took the ransom outside a hotel, threw the bag of money towards the kidnappers, and the kidnappers threw Signoretti out of the car, breaking his leg in the process. Baz Luhrmann was not present for the kidnapping, but he said he thought that $300 was a bargain. Water would be the enduring symbol of this movie, and not just the hurricanes and storms and rainfall associated, but also Leonardo DiCaprio would spend most of the shoot soaking wet. Great if you're a teenage girl in 1996, but not if you're Leonardo DiCaprio. Although, to be honest, he'd need to get used to sets flooded with water for the following year. Lerman used water as a symbolic for cleanliness and purity. We meet Juliet in a bath, and she's shown as being young, naive, chaste, escaping from the world around her, her domineering mother, her loving but demanding nurse. To get away from the effects of the drugs he's on at the Capulet party, Romeo dunks his head into a sink of water and, still wet from it, sees Juliet on the other side of, yep, more water, a luxury fish tank built between bathrooms, connected again by water but also symbolising they're from opposing sides, they just don't yet know it. They escape by falling into the Capulet pool and the water becomes their safe haven. The water is beautifully lit, it's clear, it's like you can actually see a future for these two young lovers. Spoiler alert, you can't. And then also towards the end, Romeo in a fit of rage, after Tybalt kills his best friend Mercutio, shoots Tybalt who falls into a pool of water. And the blood then taints the clear waters and therefore taints his future with Juliet. Religious imagery is also rife. Baz Luhrmann would say about the imagery, quote, There's a lot there and there are the weapons as well. Now some can say that's sacrilegious. No one has actually. It's been a bit of a surprise. But the truth is, that's an interpretation of religion in our societies. You can have an armed society like Bosnia, where everyone's running around claiming they uphold Christian notions, or Mexico, where it's all very Catholic, and yet you go into a restaurant and people are holding guns. In the Elizabethan times, a lot of that iconography was put upon weapons of war, and I always think that's a very disturbing notion. So it's not a judgment or an analysis of any kind of religion, it's about saying that everyone has to have a belief in a certain set of rules, unquote. The Virgin Mary is everywhere in this movie, the massive statue of Christ the Redeemer towering over the city. Even the title, Romeo plus Juliet, contains a cross. And that was intentional. But even with all the religion in this world, it's still a world controlled by feuding families, hate, lawlessness, money and violence. Lerman hated the idea of waste and seeing previously built sets being ripped apart after filming finished. 
such as the Capulet Pool, which cost a million dollars to build and put it all together, this beautiful serene concrete pool, and it was then ripped apart after filming ended. When it came to building Mantua, where Romeo is exiled, they found a tiny Mexican hamlet, no Shakespeare pun intended, with a few families living in squalor in the desert. The production built Mantua, the houses and all, and employed the people in the small town to be in the background of key scenes. Everyone was paid for their time, and when the production left, they left all the houses and cars behind. The previous shanty town is now known as Mantua. He also valued accuracy, which is kind of funny when your Shakespeare annotation has guns and cars. He would admit to being a huge fan of the 1968 Zifferelli version, but lamented the change to the dialogue in that version, such as do with their death, bury their parents' strife, instead of doth with their death, bury their parents' strife. Obviously, the 1996 version does cut text and sticks to the two hours traffic of our stage by being exactly two hours long, but to do that and to include the extra visual extravagances that he wanted, they did have to cut dialogue, as well as some characters. But Lerman would insist that it wasn't as much as the Zeffirelli version cut. But this is an incredibly hot, incredibly lusty version of Romeo and Juliet, especially considering it's basically aimed at teenagers. But when you're talking about hotness, we're going to segue into the obligatory Keanu reference of this episode. And if you don't know what that is, it's where I link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves for no reason other than he's the best of men and he's incredibly hot. And it's a mere coincidence that three years earlier, Keanu had starred in the terrific adaptation of Shakespeare's Much Ado About Nothing, which is a wonderful movie. I've only actually seen that very recently, but I was very taken with that adaptation. I think it's absolutely terrific. It is a very traditional adaptation of Shakespeare, but it is also basically hotness upon hotness. Because not only have you got Keanu Reeves being incredibly hot in that movie, you've also got Denzel Washington also being incredibly hot in that movie. And it's, I mean, it's genuinely great. And that's the way that I'm going to link into Romeo and Juliet because he's also done Shakespeare. And once you've done Shakespeare, then I think you can pretty much say that you've done everything. Now, if you follow me on social media, you might have seen I put a photo of my original Romeo and Juliet soundtrack CD up on the socials. I remember buying it with my pocket money in 1996 and I still own the very same CD that I bought back then. I played it almost constantly. I actually don't know if it still works. I need to put it in the CD player in my car because I don't actually have a CD player in the house anymore, but I do in my car. So uh, I am going to see if it still works, but it was like the movie defined me and my teen years and angst and all of that stuff. The soundtrack also is pretty definitive as far as I'm concerned. I love Garbage, I love Desiree, there's Kim Mazel, The Cardigans, Radiohead and the late Quindon Tarver who sang the cover of Princes When Doves Cry and that was the first version of that song that I ever heard. So yeah, I was pretty surprised when this upstart guy called Prince had this version of Quindon Tarver's song. And then obviously I realised that actually... It was Prince's song, and I do love Prince's When Doves Cry, by the way. I have since heard it. But the Quindon Tarver version, it's really lovely. It's so special. Probably the biggest songs from the soundtrack were The Cardigans Love Fall, Certified Platinum here in the UK, and Gold in Australia and New Zealand, and the Wanna Die's You and Me song, along with Desiree's Kissing You, which obviously Desiree cameos in the movie as herself as well. Beyonce would cover Kissing You in 2007, and Desiree would file a lawsuit, which was settled out of court, which is quite a fascinating story. 
if you're interested, have a bit of a read up on the Desiree Beyonce lawsuit. The soundtrack contained two separate releases. The first was the popular music from the film and the second was the score composed by Nelly Hooper, Craig Armstrong and Marius DeVries with a second soundtrack released in 1997. The score would go on to win the BAFTA Award for Best Original Music in 1997 and composer Nelly Hooper was also awarded BAFTA's Anthony Asquith Award for Music for his composition of the score in 1998. And The X Factor would go on to use the track Over Rona pretty much consistently for all of eternity. So much so that I think that people just think it's the song from The X Factor now and not the song from Romeo and Juliet, but it is the song from Romeo and Juliet. Now, the original plan for this movie was to market it as a modern adaptation called simply Romeo and Juliet and to not mention William Shakespeare. And this was because of the contemporary imagery and the fact it was clearly a Romeo and Juliet story, but there are a lot of Romeo and Juliet stories out there. And so Baz Luhrmann persuaded them to change the name to William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet so that there was no doubt that it was an adaptation of the play rather than an adaptation of something else. Just to reiterate the fact that it is definitely William Shakespeare's text. Although arguably most people just call it Romeo and Juliet. Uh, I certainly don't call it William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. I will be for the title of this podcast. But for most people it is just Romeo and Juliet or Romeo plus Juliet if you want to be literal about it. So Romeo and Juliet was released on the 1st of November 1996 and the only real competition at the box office was the legal crime drama Sleepers starring Kevin Bacon, Robert De Niro and Dustin Hoffman. Romeo and Juliet opened at number one at the US box office, dropped to third in its second week after the releases of Ransom and set it off and it would go on to stay in the US top 10 for five weeks. I think it's safe to say that 20th Century Fox really didn't see this Romeo and Juliet as anything particularly special. But it actually kind of was because on its $14.5 million budget, it would gross $46.4 million domestically in the US and $101.2 million internationally for a total worldwide gross of $147.6 million. So this Romeo and Juliet was a huge financial hit for 20th Century Fox. But it's also safe to say that this particular adaptation is incredibly divisive. People who love it, love it deeply. People who dislike it, dislike it intently. It's not a straight adaptation, nor is it something based on the story. It sits kind of in between. It's currently 73% on Rotten Tomatoes. But while it may be critically mixed, retrospectively, it's become the ideal entry point for the youth of today to be introduced to Shakespeare. It's modern enough, but not too modern to be outdated. Over its 27 years, it's become influential in its own right and popular among English teachers as a gateway to Shakespeare and the rest of his works. Because arguably, while movies like West Side Story and 10 Things I Hate About You are wonderfully fun, vibrant and interesting and funny, they are very loose adaptations of the original text. Whereas at least with Romeo and Juliet, it still puts Shakespeare's words into a modern setting. And also by putting Shakespeare's words into a modern setting, it actually helps you to understand Shakespearean vernacular. Romeo and Juliet would also be nominated for an Academy Award for Best Art Direction at the 69th Academy Awards, but it lost out to the English Patient. It would also be nominated for seven BAFTAs, winning four, Best Direction, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Original Music and Best Production Design. 
And obviously, there is no Romeo and Juliet 2, Electric Boogaloo. There's also technically no remake of Romeo and Juliet, but there have been more different versions of Romeo and Juliet. And there will be more versions of Romeo and Juliet for Time Eternal, because it just is that sort of text that will just constantly be revised and redone and remade constantly. Let's move over to some social media thoughts I like to ask on Patreon and also on Twitter or X or whatever you want to call it now. I'm still going to call it Twitter and Instagram and threads and Facebook as well. What people think of the movies that I feature. We're going to start with the patrons and we've actually got quite a few patrons to go through this week. So I'll go through it pretty quick. We're going to start with perennial commenter Andy who says, one of the things I dislike about Baz Luhrmann is his need to show how visually clever he is, exemplified in Romeo plus Juliet with the close-up of the word sword etched on the handles of their guns because look what I did, aren't I clever? I'm sorry, but R plus J isn't my jam. Which is absolutely fine, of course. Not everyone's going to love this movie. But while I'm here, I don't always like to give patrons who have podcasts a bit of a plug for their podcasts. So... I'm going to let you know about Andy's podcast, Geek Salad, and I'm also going to put some information in the show notes for you to go and listen to his podcast, Geek Salad. It is a terrific podcast, and I recommend it every week because Andy comments every week, so you should absolutely have a listen. Information in the show notes. We have a comment from Brendan who says, Even with the modern setting and costumes, no film version so accurately and viscerally captures the wonder, agony, desperate horniness, and world-ending stakes of being a teenager like Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet, and rarely has a cast of legends been this well used. That ineffable factor of the bard story, along with Leeds supporting chemistry as hot as the Verona Beach sun, makes this undeniably 90s power ballad of an adaptation arguably as timeless as any more period-accurate Shakespeare on film. We have a comment from Brett who says, I remember watching this version in high school and went in very confused. The modern take on the story with the Shakespearean dialogue really threw me off. Baz Luhrmann knows how to make a very pretty looking film, but this was a one and done for me. Brett also does have his own podcast. It is called Dissect That Film. And you should go and listen to them for movie retrospectives and various discussions about movies and TV shows. I'll put some information in the show notes for Dissect That Film too. We have a patron comment from Pete who says, as much as I want to love Baz's vision here, most of this film is a bridge too far for me. The slower, more traditional scenes land well due to the performances of the two title characters, but the manically paced, disjointed portions push me away at every turn. And um, clearly the, most of the patrons are not a fan of this movie, but I'll tell you what I am a fan of, and that is Pete's podcast, Middle Class Film Class. And they are there for weekly movie news, reviews, and as always, I will put information in the show notes for Middle Class Film Class. And the final patron comment comes from Vern, who says, I just remember that this adaptation was a very clever way to get young people to actually like and pay attention to Shakespeare. The soundtrack with songs by Garbage and Radiohead are more iconic than the film itself. I don't think it would work setting it today. The 90s was a great choice story-wise. And I think you're right, Vern. I don't think you could set it today at all. I don't think it would work. I think it has to be the 90s. And I also agree that the soundtrack songs by Garbage and Radiohead are absolutely iconic. And speaking of iconic, Vern has a podcast himself. It's called Cinema Recall. And Cinema Recall loves iconic moments in film and cult movies. I'll put information for Cinema Recall in the show notes too. 
Moving over to Twitter, we have at Real Feels Pod, who says, I'm not a fan of this version. Sorry to those who love it. At Katie Smith Wong says, This was the film that defined my high school years. I went to an all-girls school studying GCSEs when it was released and everyone fell in love with Leo. It got to the point that my year wanted to study Romeo and Juliet just to watch the film. And, um, yeah, I can relate, Katie. At I Am That Wiz said, When I originally watched this in high school, I never understood exactly why Lerman modernised it visually but kept the dialogue intact. But since I liked the visuals, I just went with it and was like, that's okay, I guess. Then I watched the Zeffirelli version senior year. Loved that version a lot. Went back to Lerman's a year or two later even more confused. What was really the point of this? If it was to get a new generation of kids to appreciate the old play, I don't think it worked. People in my school at the time who actually loved the film always said they hated the dialogue and wish whoever wrote to just make it sound normal. But the visuals are what kept coming back, and DiCaprio, of course, only the women liked this movie. At Jerry underscore zero six said, It's actually one of my favourite renditions. Until you posted it, I almost forgot DiCaprio was in this movie. At Elaine G. Wright said, The film that makes me feel like a teenager all over again. One of the best jukebox soundtracks to grace the silver screen. Thankfully, my husband was similarly obsessed. We walked back up the aisle to you and me song at our wedding. Also, Harold Perrineau is the Mercutio. And I agree with that as well, Elaine. At Johnny Literati said, Love this version wholly and unironically, but the single best thing Baz did was to let Harold Perrineau freaking own the role of Mercutio in a way that will forever define the character. Again, totally 100%. At Corona T said, When this movie came out, I was in college. A group of us went to the theatre near campus to see it and were so excited that we talked non-stop until the film started. In that dark, crowded theatre, I felt so much excitement, love and fear for Romeo and Juliet that I really hoped it would end differently from the play. I loved this movie so much, the next day I bought the CD and several posters. This remains my favourite film adaptation of the play. It's beautifully shot and well acted, plus the soundtrack is great. And yet, just like you, Tara, I also bought the CD and several posters after watching this movie. At Swati Sharkika said, One of my all-time favourite soundtracks. Every song is a banger and defied my generation. I was born in 1980. Personally, I love the movie because it's so extra, but I get why not everyone loves it. And at movie underscore drone said, I love this one. Steve, not so much. I remember covering it and it really wasn't his bag. Seems a very Marmite film, but I love the use of traditional Shakespearean language. Moving over to Instagram, we have at Movies You Missed Pod, who said, Leguizamo was perfection, as was Harold Perrineau. Baz created a fantastic reimagining, the frenetic editing and that soundtrack. The entire cast really delivered. And final comment over on Facebook from Giles, who says, I love this film. This was the gateway drug to a lifetime of Shakespeare plays. When I think of the characters, I still think of this version. Mercutio is, was, and always will be just the coolest. And thank you to everyone for your comments on William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. I expected a diverse selection of comments and the diversity was there for definite. But I think we can all agree that Mercutio is genuinely one of the highlights of this movie. I love Harold Perrineau's Mercutio. And I'm always genuinely sad when, spoiler alert, he dies in the middle of the movie. But his death scene is so well done as well. Harold Perrineau is just so terrific. And the definitive Mercutio, 
This is the definitive Romeo and Juliet, the definitive soundtrack, and the definitive Mercutio. But as always, I'm just so delighted to get comments for these episodes. So if you do want your comments read out, then comment on the false post or go up on social media. They're usually on a Friday. I was there, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and also threads as well. Just put a little comment on there and I will read it out in the episode. And I'll also credit you as well. So I'm not sure if you realise yet, but I adore this version of Romeo and Juliet. It is genuinely one of my favourite movies, I think, probably ever. And it's kind of weird that it's taken 219 episodes to get to it. But some things you've got to savour. Some things need time. Some things you just get round to when you really want to get round to them. And this month is all about the nostalgia factor. Those movies that I just simply loved so much when they came out. Maybe they don't hold up so well, like there's something about Mary. But there's still something about them that just makes me want to go back to them. And Romeo and Juliet is an exploration of contemporary urban violence, psychedelic drugs, religion, the media, and the extravagant parties and indulgences of the rich and famous. It's also for me the definitive Romeo and Juliet. Nothing could ever come close to this movie for me. Even the future version of Romeo and Juliet that I'm sure is excellent, probably going to star like Tom Holland and Zendaya or something like that, and I'm sure it's going to be great, but it's going to be nothing like this for me. And maybe that is nostalgia goggles. Maybe it's because I, like every other heterosexual woman and gay man on the planet, crushed hard on Leonardo DiCaprio. Maybe because it was bright, colourful, dramatic and frantic. But I feel like Lerman's film succeeds because he's not afraid to add his distinctive style. Lerman lavishes attention on his sets, costumes and directing. The young protagonists who fall in love at first sight seem to embody the overall themes of the film, which is, in essence, excess. Excessive money, excessive violence, excessive symbolism. Lerman would follow Romeo and Juliet with the third film in his Red Curtain trilogy, Moulin Rouge, the first was aforementioned Strictly Ballroom, all have extravagant visuals, simple plots, disorientated camera work, frenetic editing, and very little in the way of visual effects. Both Romeo and Juliet and Moulin Rouge include drug-induced trips, bizarre hallucinations, and huge choreographed dance sequences. Romeo and Juliet is, in essence, two horny teenagers who fall in love at first sight, get married and then both die. But through Leonardo DiCaprio and Claire Danes' earnest performances, you genuinely get a feeling of the power of young love, sacrifice and teen angst. It does actually truly take you back. The soundtrack also feels like carefully chosen teen angst playlists from the mid-90s and it speaks to me. I've not seen Baz Luhrmann's latest movie, Elvis but I really hope it's as outlandish, indulgent and gaudy as this. I hope it has the same flair and style, as well as being brought down to earth by some genuinely great performances. Romeo and Juliet can easily become a parody, a satire on the hollowness of religion and the hypocrisy of these families for being so overtly religious and yet also at war with each other for seemingly no reason. It speaks to the horrors and wonders of humanity. Humans are so bitter and twisted, they'll be at war with each other at great cost to the people they love. But humans are also creatures of love and will either use that impulsive nature for hatred or to fall in love with someone. The story of Romeo and Juliet is so well known that it's become a trope in its own right. But it also, this movie takes guts to be different. 27 years later, this Romeo and Juliet remains as relatable 
visually stunning and thought-provoking as ever. I don't think any other adaptation offers that or ever will offer that. Although, Juliet, turning down a sweet and kind Paul Rudd, really? Some things just don't hold up. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. And if you do want to help and get involved and help this podcast grow, that would mean so much to me. I would be so grateful. And you can do that by simply leaving a rating or review wherever you found this podcast, retweeting or liking posts on social media. I am at Verbal Diorama, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Threads and Letterboxd, among many, many others. Or just tell a friend or family member about this podcast, about this episode, about any of the episodes in this podcast history. If you've got a friend or family member who loves movies and is interested in how they were made, then Verbal Diorama is the podcast for them. If you like this episode of William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, you might also like the following episode slash movie. And I'm just going to do one this week. And it's simply episode 58, 10 Things I Hate About You, which is an adaptation of William Shakespeare's The Taming of the Shrew, set in a US high school. It is one of the great 90s high school comedies. It's so sweet. It's so earnest. It's got wonderful Heath Ledger. It's got brilliant Julia Stiles. Everyone in that movie is atop of their comedic game. It's just so great. So if you've not seen that movie, please go and watch it. You will absolutely love it. As always, give me feedback on my episode recommendations. Let me know what you think. And as I said, this month is all about nostalgia. It's about movies I love, but I haven't covered yet. And I know you'll find it strange that I haven't done this one yet. But then strange things are afoot at the Circle K. And it's about time we went into the history. Because it is the history report after all. And legacy of Bill S. Preston Esquire and Ted Theodore Logan and their band Wild Stallions. Join me next week for the history and legacy of Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. You know, it's going to be... Excellent! And this podcast is free and it always will be free. But if you do want to help this podcast grow financially as well, help with subscriptions and hosting and new equipment and all of the stuff that keeps this podcast going, then you can join the Patreon at verbaldiorama.com slash Patreon or you can give a one-off tip at verbaldiorama.com slash tips. But as always, a huge thank you to the amazing patrons of this podcast, to Simon E, Sade, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Vern, Kat, Andy, Mike, Luke, Michael, Scott, Brendan, Lisa, Sam, Jack, Dave, Chris, Stuart, Nicholas, Zoe, Kev, Pete, Heather, Danny, Ali, Tyler, Stu, Brett, Philip, and Michelle. Wherefore art thou, Simon E., Sade, Claudia, Simon B., Laurel, Derek, Vern, Kat, Andy, Mike, Luke, Michael, Scott, Brendan, Lisa, Sam, Jack, Dave, Chris, Stuart, Nicholas, Zoe, Kev, Pete, Heather, Danny, Ali, Tyler, Stu, Brett, Philip, and Michelle. Deny thy father, refuse thy name, or if thou wilt not, be but sworn my patrons, and I'll no longer be verbal diorama. I also have a merch store, it's verbaldiorama.com slash merch. You can get in touch with me by emailing verbaldiorama at gmail.com or you can pop over to my website where all of my episodes are available at verbaldiorama.com and you can also find work that I do over at filmstories.co.uk. You can find the magazine and you can find the articles that I write online too. And finally, glooming peace this morning with it brings. 
the sun for sorrow will not show his head. Go hence to have more talk of these sad things. Some shall be pardoned and some punished. For never was a story of more woe than this of Juliet and her Romeo. Bye. Hey there, classmates. Tune in to Middle Class Film Class every Monday and Wednesday for weekly movie news, streaming picks, and one deep dive review. The Batman trailer. There was a teaser. There was a trailer. Trailer 1, trailer 2. Final trailer? I don't know if it's the same one. How many trailers do we need exactly? Leave an email or a voicemail to join in the discussion. Bullshit artist! Uh, <laughs> yeah, buddy! All That's right. awesome. You're going full Danzig. Right, I am. My, my trans has no power over me. me. <laughs> <laughs>